Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper. And remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. And I got to tell you something, people. I'm very excited to have this gentleman on my show today because he has had like the coolest life. Not only was he a was he an All-American running back in an Ivy League school and runner-up for the Heisman, then he becomes a pro football player, which I had a football card of him, and he went to some Super Bowls, and then he gets out, and what does he do? He decides to become an actor, and he's on a few hit shows, he's on a groundbreaking show, and my mom always would say, when she saw him on Sisters, she would say, that Ed Marinaro is a handsome gentleman, and my <laughs> guest is Ed Marinaro. How you doing, Ed? How you doing? Good, good, doing good. You know, I, I, I never had to ask anyone this. You know, you, what's it like when you shoot a football card? Is it anything like when you shot your acting headshots, or is it completely different? You know, it, it was certainly not uh, any kind of big deal. I mean, the, they would come to the company, we'd come to training camp, and, you know, they'd get all the players that they wanted to have cards from, and they'd take a picture, and you had no say over you know approval or anything and the, the shot just showed up it was wasn't very sophisticated um back in the days you know in the 70s i mean i'm sure it's changed quite a bit now you know everybody has approval and it's a big industry now but uh i mean we did it for free and we never got paid a penny for it so i still i had that card right it's amazing when you think about it and we didn't get paid anything you know yeah you'd think they would give they would give you something because it's your likeness and it would make sense and that's just i never knew that you guys didn't get paid because then i feel bad because i bought them and you guys didn't get anything no we uh we never did you know and uh you know it's interesting because you know in my day you know it was before you know the whole memorabilia phrase and you know i I got so many requests in the mail, fan mail with cards in it. And, you know, when I was on the cover of Sports Illustrated, when I was in college, you know, I, I got covers sent to me and I would sign them. And then it became, you know, like a business. <clears throat> and, you know, I had a bunch of friends who, you know, I got to know over the years, uh, golf buddies who were like Hall of Fame baseball players and Hall of Fame football players. And they uh, they stopped signing stuff because, you know, a, a baseball signed by a Hall of Fame baseball player was like, you know, you get 100, 150 bucks for it. And it turned out that they'd sign these balls or whatever, and then the guy who you signed it for would go sell it. So, you know, the, the whole kind of – I don't know what you call it, but it wasn't as, as genuine and uh, as it was, you know, back in my day. We didn't even think about. But I mean, they would literally have kids come up in, in wheelchairs to get guys to sign stuff. You know, people would pay kids in wheelchairs to come up, and you couldn't turn them down. It was, it, it, you know, really took a lot out of the, uh, you know, the fan player kind of relationship. Well, you know, now you being an ex-player, I wanted to ask you, because they always say ex-football players, pro now football players, it's like a brotherhood. When when Demar Hamlin got hurt the other night, does that really hit home for you more than most people? Because you played the game and you saw injuries. Um, you know, I think anybody who uh, was a played football and was a fan of football, what happened? You know, it, it impacts you. I mean, you you can't help but you know just 
personalize it a little bit and relate to a certain extent. You could relate to what his how his teammates felt when 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 it happened. It scares the crap out of you. I mean, it's a it's such a it, it's such a rare rare occurrence. I mean, I, don't, I mean, it just doesn't happen a lot, and I don't think anybody is really prepared for that. It's just sort of like. Uh, kicks you in the, in the stomach. It's like a reality check, you know, that we're all human beings and no one's immune to stuff like that. So, you know, it, 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 it uh, you know, I, I was, I was just thinking about that. I was, I was wondering how somebody who's not a sports fan, how somebody who's not a football fan, you know, it was all over the place. I mean, you, you, you the media just covered it to death, but how they might've, felt how, how they saw this thing it was sort of like a you know a non-event for a lot of people in this country you know if you're not a football fan you're not a sports fan you know you you you, you don't understand you know it happened it happened on national television it was for a you know a professional athlete which is such a you know the whole such a big part of our culture but the average guy is not a sports fan you know didn't it, he might have had a little better perspective than we did as as fans. You know, we, we, we kind of, you know, it, it, it touched part of, you know, who we were, you know, the things we enjoy. Um, yeah, so, I mean, I, I, I think it was, I mean, I, I made the sign of the cross several times, you know, when I watched coverage. I mean, I, I felt for this boy, this young man, you know, I mean, I, it was just scary because my son plays football. He plays at uh, Cornell, and you know I can only imagine if I was watching a game of my son that happened to him. You know it would be devastating. But you know I, I think um, you know you have to look at it the way the world would look at it and not exploit the whole thing. And you know I mean I mean I've seen so much uh, you know people opining on what happened. You know I mean there was one article and you probably saw it where somebody you know, accused uh, football as being racist because it, it affect, injuries affect black players more than white players. And, I mean, it's, it, it's, to somebody to even say that, it just shows the absurdity of uh, the people that we let have a voice in, in, in this country. I mean, you, you talk about monitoring content. Uh, how anybody would even print an article like that? It's so absurd. I mean, Tony Dungy uh, came out and said how ridiculous it was. But, you know, again, that's just what we do today. And that exploiting this guy's misfortune, as, as you saw, you know, a lot of people, you know, taking holier-than-thou uh, positions. But everybody felt bad. I felt, I felt bad, like I said. So, you know, it's just I think it's a product of the society we live in and, and, and um, you know, uh, people wanting to just take advantage of, of any opportunity they can to, to voice their opinions. Now, I want to talk about your, you said your son plays at uh, Cornell, and you played, of course, at Cornell. When you were young, were you just, like, better than, like, we had kids in Pop Warner who were just, like, better than everybody. Were you one of those kids that, like, would score, like, six touchdowns a game? I mean, when did you start really getting in your gear? Because, I mean, you were an All-American. You had records. I mean, you were a great ball player. When did you know that you were good? Was it a young age where, like, you were faster or you just had the moves? How did you know you were really good um hmm. you know what i i when i look back at it 
I realized I was really better than everybody. You know, I mean, I, at a, I started playing, you know, you play in Sandlot, you play softball and grammar school. Then I played, my first time I played organized football, I was 12 years old in my hometown. We started a junior football league, you know, and I was, you know, I was good, but I never felt like I was that much better than everybody. You know, I, I you know, I guess I was insecure when I probably shouldn't have been, you know, I mean, I, I, I didn't know how good I was. I always thought there was people that were better than I was. And that sort of, you know, followed me my whole career, you know, there's always thinking that, you know, you're not as good as, as somebody, but I always was. And I, you know, I, I, I think, you know, I think most athletes, you know, we're not superhuman beings and, you know, we don't, think we don't look at ourselves the way other people look at us you know and, and i you know i look back now i look at highlights of myself sometimes and i went wow man, that, was, that was pretty good you know i made a good run i made, you know but at the time you just never you, you know you, you had always had some self-doubt and and you know i i i admire kids like this kid from the 49ers the quarterback who uh you know, was the last player picked, and I'm sure was never considered to be ever being a starting quarterback in the NFL. And this guy just got it. He, that should be a, a role model for every young athlete in, in the world. You know, for him to come from where he was and, and, and never doubting his his ability. I mean, I, I I admire the hell out of that. I think that's that's one of the great stories. It's kind of like a like a Tom Brady story. You know, Tom Brady. I love Tom Brady, and uh, you know the fact that he sat on the bench for four years and turned out to be the greatest of all time is, is just a great story and should be an inspiration to any young athlete. You know, you never doubt yourself. Don't let other people put doubt in your mind if you think you're good. You're, you're going to get to the point that when you know you're not good enough, <laughs> that's good. Reality is going to set in, but you know you keep going and going until that reality sets in. Now. Why did you choose Cornell? I mean, it, it, it's an Ivy League school, I and mean, so you're. Was it? I mean, were you just you wanted to get an education? Did you think you were going to go pro, or what was your philosophy? Because once again, that's a amazing college. You know, beside you know, for anyone to get into it. So why did you decide to go to Cornell? Well, you know, I don't. I I, I uh, had I just always I really looked up or admired all the smart kids that I went to high school with. <laughs> you know, I I didn't struggle, but, you know, I, I was a B student at best, you know, and I, I wasn't, you know, academically inclined. I didn't, you know, I was a jock. I was a, an athlete. I played sports. That was my, my identity. And, you know, I, I, uh, I just... The, the prestige, even at a young age, I was only 17 or 18 years old, just the prestige that went along with going to an Ivy League school, coming from my background, I, you know, I said, boy, would that be so cool? And I had like, you know, I had 40 football scholarships. I had, you know, I had basketball scholarships uh, coming out of high school. And, um, you know, it's just... Uh, you know, I, I, it was the, I never, you know, you don't think about pro football 
when you go to a place like, you know, Cornell or an Ivy League school. I wasn't really thinking about that at all. And what happened to me in college was the last thing I ever thought was happening. I, I took one, I wanted to make the freshman team because we had freshman football back then. And, you know, God, we had, we had the first day of freshman football, we had 130 guys show up to play football. I mean, I was like, there were like 20 running backs. And, you know, I, and they were, some kids were all state from Michigan. I mean, they were, you know, I'm going, oh my goodness, you know. So I kind of emerged as the best back on the freshman team. And then I said, I want to make the varsity next year. And then when I made the varsity, I said, I want to be a starter. First string. And then I was first string. And then I, all of a sudden I was running all over the place and gaining all these yards. And I don't think it was till after my sophomore year, I was, my sophomore year, I was third team All-American. And that's the first time I thought about pro football. That's I said, I probably will get a chance to be a free agent. I'll get a free agent tryout by the time I'm a senior. And obviously it evolved from there as my career got better and people were, you know, coming and pros were coming to my school. And, you know, I, I knew I was going to get a shot at pro football by the time I was a junior. So, you know, it was, I think it was a healthy evolution for me, you know, and I tell my son that all the time. I said, you got to take one step at a time, one hurdle at a time. Don't get so far ahead of yourself. Take care of the business at hand. And that's kind of what I, I mean, I, I wasn't conscious that I was doing that, but that's kind of what I did. Maybe I was protecting myself from failure. Uh, by getting too far ahead of myself, but I took one challenge at a time, and you know, obviously, it worked out. Now, come to your senior year, you know, you're a runner-up for the Heisman, which, as you can say, you never thought that would happen when you were younger. At that point, you know that you're going to be a first-round draft choice. Are you thinking what? What is your thought at that point? Do you say, "The hell with the free agent, I'm getting drafted"? I mean, what what is it like when you when you're sitting there and you're up for one of the most prestigious awards and an award that most people know about? Um, well, I, um, you know, by that time I knew I was going to get drafted. I didn't know. I mean, I had teams call me, tell me I was going to be in the first round pick, you know, and, and second round pick and third round pick, you know, everybody was speculating and I, you know, I kind of didn't know what to expect. And, um, you know, it was very exciting. I mean, obviously, it didn't. There wasn't the fanfare attached to it. I mean, I was sitting in my apartment in Ithaca, New York, when uh, Jim Finks of the Vikings called me up and told me I was. I mean, there was no draft parties. There were none of that stuff. I was with my college roommate, my girlfriend, and I got a call on there. You, congratulations! You're drafted by the Minnesota Vikings. <laughs> Great, <laughs> but um, you know it was uh, yeah it was it was it was totally different. People, you know, I mean I I you know I did uh, I went to the NFL draft this year, and I, I I announced the Vikings second round pick because it was fifty years ago that I was the second round pick, and they brought me into Vegas, and I did this whole thing. I mean it was it was incredible. The, the, the hoopla, I mean, there were 
thousands and thousands of people in Las Vegas. You know, when I, when I was on the stage, I looked down, and it was a sea of people. And, and, and I, you know, I'm trying to, boy, that's a big difference in when I was drafted. <laughs> now, once you get drafted and then you go to the Vikings, how much as a difference is how good pro players are to college player part are? Is it like noticeable? And you're on a very good Viking team. I mean, that was a they were a great team. But could, once you got into training camp, did you say, "Man, these guys are a level above what I'm used to"? Well, I, I think you kind of find out pretty quick that you know they're bigger, faster, and stronger. And everybody who's on the team was their be- the best player from their college, usually. I mean, so, you know, it's, uh, you know, the difference between a guy making it in the pros at a college is having that extra gear that you never had to use when you're in college. I mean, you think you're doing, going as fast as you can and hitting as hard as you can and whatever when you're in college and then you go to the pros and the holes open up like you got to get to the hole really fast. You've got to be quick. And some people just don't have that gear. I had that gear. When I realized that I had to get there faster, I got there faster. And, you know, it only takes is a couple of times running in there and getting, you know, a helmet in your chest because you didn't get there fast enough. You know, you, you 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 adjust, and some people just don't have that gear, and they, you know, they reach their potential when they're in college, and that's I think that's the difference, the big difference between the pros and and and, and college, and now, you know, it, it's even, I mean, everything is you know gotten gotten, the college they're getting bigger, stronger, faster in college. I mean, when I was at Cornell. Our offensive line probably averaged 215 pounds. Now, the Cornell line is 300 pounds, all of them. And this is Ivy League. So, you know, it's, it's, the game is so much different. I, you know, I'm, I really have no, uh, I'm, I have no credibility to be commenting on what's going on in college now because it's just so different. Just what I hear from my son. Now, what was it like stepping on to a, Regular season football game for the first time because so many kids dream of that. You know, we, you know, we all we all played Sandlot or Pee Wee football. What is it like when you're sitting there and you go, "Oh my God!" You look around and the stadium's packed and you're on the field. I mean, is it just an exhilarating feeling? Yeah, you know, um, <laughs> one of the first games I played as a Viking was we had an exhibition game against the San Diego Chargers. And it was, uh, I believe it was in Minnesota. This was 1972. And one of the quarterbacks for the San Diego Chargers was Johnny Unitas. And I grew up a huge fan of Johnny Unitas. I mean, he, I thought he was so cool back in the 60s and 70s. And there I am on the opposite sidelines of Johnny Unitas. And, 
you know, that was a, a surreal moment for me. And, you know, it's, uh, you know, walking in the, your, your, the locker room when you're a rookie for the first time and you see all the guys you watched on television, you know, like Fran Tarkenton and Alan Page and Carl Eller, and you're, you're this little shithead, you know, fresh <laughs> rookie, you know, that they don't even want to talk to. And it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's all kinds of stuff, you know, you, you're, you're nervous, you, you, you don't want to make a mistake, there's a lot of pressure, you're trying to make the team, you know, it's, uh, it's probably the most pressure I ever felt in my life, you know, as a rookie, trying to, you know, be good enough to make the team, because there's no guarantee that I was going to make the team, you know, so, but... I did. <laughs> now, do you remember your first touchdown? I'm sure you do. Tell me about your first touchdown you scored for the Vikings. Well, in, in ever in my whole life, or as a pro? As a pro. As a pro, uh, my first touchdown was the last game of the season in Minnesota against the 49ers. I caught a, I think, a 12-yard touchdown pass. That was my first touchdown as a, as a pro. Did you keep the ball? Pardon me, no, we didn't keep the ball. <laughs> That's because I see people. If you kept the ball, they charge you fifty bucks, and we couldn't afford that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so you're you're playing, and you're on the Vikings. You go to some Super Bowls. At what point do you feel your career is over? Does your body start feeling it? Do you feel slower? I mean, when did you know? Because the life expectancy of a running back is pretty small anyway. But when did you know that your football career was coming to an end? Well, you know, the sad irony was that, you know, I was playing with the Jets. <clears throat> and I played with Minnesota for four years. And then I, I, I became a free agent, went to the Jets. Took me a couple games to get, you know, going with the Jets. But the last two games that I played on in, when I was with the Jets, we played the 49ers, and I gained 111 yards on the ground. And we lost the next game. We played the Buffalo Bills at Shea Stadium, and I gained 120 yards. So I had back-to-back 100-yard rushing games, and I was on a roll. The next game, we played the Patriots up in a Monday night football game in Foxborough. And I think in the first quarter, I get hit from behind. Somebody rolls on my foot and separates all the bones of my foot and I was done I was done for the season you know they you know back then they didn't know how to they did misdiagnosis before MRIs and they they didn't know what it was but my foot hurt and I couldn't run in it and I didn't do anything for the rest of the season I came back the next year never a hundred percent and I got released and um, I was out of football, and that was probably 77, and uh, mid-season 77, I got a call from the Seahawks. This was their second year as a team, Seahawks, and they needed a running back, so they flew me in there, and I tried out, and I signed, I played the last like six or seven games with the Seahawks. And they offered me a contract for 78. And I was talking about that moving position. I, I thought about maybe being a tight end. 
I could have put on weight. You know, I was a good blocker, a good receiver, whatever. And then I thought about where would be a good place for me. So I did some checking around, and I ended up, I got invited uh, to go to play in Chicago for the Bears. The general manager was the same guy who signed me when I was with the Vikings, Jim Fix. He was the general manager of the Bears. So they... I went through training camp with the Bears and made the right to the last cut. Then I got cut, and I was I was done. But I kind of, you know, it wasn't until had I not gotten hurt, I would have probably played for ten years. I ended up playing for six, but you know, I was very durable, and you know, I was, you know, I, that was the only injury I ever had. I never missed a game. You know, my whole career uh, until that game that I got hurt. So, um, you know, it wasn't until, you know, I, I decided to go to Hollywood. I, I moved out to Hollywood and I started studying acting. And I remember right at the, uh, the toward the end of the season, I think it was probably 78, my agent called me and said uh, the, the Patriots or checking about, you know, your availability. And I think there was only like four or five games left in the season. And I, you know, I, I was not in good shape. I was, you know, I wasn't in football shape. And that was like the last, kind of my last moment where, you know, uh, I, my future was over after that as a football player. Now, so, you went to Hollywood. When you were younger, did you want to be an actor? I mean, where did the acting bug come from? Because it's, as I said in the beginning, it's like you play pro football, which is someone's dream, and then you, you're an actor, a successful actor, which is someone's dream. It's like you paralleled it. When did you get the acting bug? Was that something you've always had, or was it just when you said, what am I going to do? I'm, I'm a handsome guy. I'm in good shape. You know, I've been in front of fans. I have the work ethic because acting does take hard work when you study. I mean, what made you decide to follow that path? Um, you know, I, uh, Joe Namath and I are, were and are still good friends, you know, and I, I hung around, I met Joe when I was a senior in college. I worked at his football camp the first year he had his football camp, which was right before my rookie year with the Vikings. And we just became, he was like a big brother to me, you know, and after the season was over, I, I'd leave Minnesota, and I he, he had a place down in Fort Lauderdale. I'd go down to Fort Lauderdale, and we'd golf and fish every day and go out and, you know, chase girls. Wait, 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 real quick, real quick. What's it like going to a <laughs> club with Joe Namath? Because the guy is legendary. I mean, you must just, did women just flock to you guys? Yeah, yeah. It was pretty <laughs> crazy. It was pretty crazy. This was the 70s, and, uh, it was, uh, it was crazy. <laughs> anyway, so, so I spent time with Joe out in L.A., and I met some people, um, you know, just through him. <clears throat> Excuse me. And uh, I pretty much got discovered because some agent, when I was out there, reached out to Joe's partner, and asked if I would do a screen test. I met him. Would I do a screen test? Uh, 
they were gonna they were looking for to replace Lee Majors in the six million dollar man. And they were like auditioning all kinds of people. They flew me out to do a screen test. You know, I'd never really acted before. And I went out there and they uh I they gave me a contract which was about ten times if I got this role, about ten times what I made playing football in Minnesota. And you know, that's what I didn't get the role, obviously. Lee Majors came back to the show, but that got me interested. And that's when I, you know, I, the next off season, I moved out there. I I studied acting. And uh, when I went back to play for the Jets, I got into an acting class in New York. And then when my career was finally over, I just, um, when I knew I wasn't going to play anymore, I just moved out to L.A. full time. I had an agent. I had my Screen Actors Guild card because I'd done some commercials. And, you know, I spent a couple of years before I started getting any significant roles and, you know, got a couple of breaks, you know, and the rest is history, I guess. Well, you were on Laverne and Shirley. Um, yeah. What was that like? Because that was a show. Every, once again, I love that show. And I think anyone, I'm, I'm 59 and anyone my age watched that show because, you know, you would sit there with your family and you had your TV nights. That's what we did. What was it like when you get on a, a hit show? I mean, it's something that, you know, you as I said earlier, you're used you're used to fanfare. You know, you were on the cover of Sport, uh, Sports Illustrated. You played in front of audiences. So it's it's just is it just a different experience because now you're on this hit show instead of being in front of you know th- thousands of fans in the audience, you have millions of fans watching you through the screen. You know, it was um It was it was uh, crazy. It was crazy to be on a show, you know, that's a top 10 show in the country. You know, it was the sixth year of the show. So they, you know, they had this thing down pretty good. And uh, at that point, the show was pretty dysfunctional as far as the cast you know, they, you know, everybody was crazy. I mean, they were all had their own issues and it was very, it was just crazy. It was pretty toxic, but you know, I was new. I was making more money than I ever made. And I was on the hit show, uh, you know, watching, you know, watching these really talented comedians working and stuff. And, it was just really exciting. It was just, I, you know, I mean, I was just thrilled when I got this role. You know, it was like, what you dream about, you know, as a new actor to get a role on a, on a hit TV show. It was like, you know. Uh, and then, you know, I did a half a season and then they fired me. <laughs> Why? Just any reason? Um, You know what? I, I just don't think that, uh, well, the show was on its final, you know, run, if you will. I mean, it was, um, you know, I just don't think they felt that I was worth paying for the role I was playing. And uh, it was pretty devastating at the time, but it turned out to be the best thing that ever happened to me. Because a couple of months after that, I auditioned for Hill Street Blues. And I mean, that was probably, you know, the, you know, my defining moment as an actor. 
Now, was it to be on a show like that? You know, at the time, it was such a groundbreaking show. It was, it was, it was, you know, just unlike anything that had been on before that. You know, and I was, you know, I was working with some great writers and actors, and it was, it was incredible. I mean, you know, just getting to do that quality stuff every week it was. Was was the audition process for that a lengthy one, or did you just get did you get a call back, or did you just go in and you audition? They gave it to you. How did you get that role? Was it a few auditions? Okay, uh, I'll tell you. This is this is how it happens. My agent called me and told me I had a, a meeting uh, at this studio where the Hill Street Studio was, the, where the casting was, but I had a meeting over at the studio for a role in a movie about uh, uh, male, male dancers, male strippers. Like, a, like what's that? Uh... Chippendales. Yeah. So my agent says, while you're there, why don't you go over to uh, the casting office of Hill Street Blues, you know, and this is the first year of Hill Street Blues. You know, it hadn't, it had a lot of critical acclaim and, you know, it was getting a lot of buzz from the industry, but, you know, nobody was watching the show. <clears throat> so I go over there, I park my car, I'm walking into the studio, I run into a, a friend of mine who's in uh, my acting class, and I said, where are you, where are you going? He goes, well, and he told me I'm going over to the Hill Street Blues office. I said, oh, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm going to go over too. So I go over there with him, you know, just to see what's going on and, they were auditioning another role at the time. All these actors were in this room. And, you know, I went up to the reception. So I said, oh, I'm Ed Marinero. My agent told me to come and uh, say hello to uh, Jerry Windsor, who was the casting person. Now, I thought Jerry Windsor was a man. Anyway, so um, I, I, she, uh, the, the reception says, well, she's on her way over here. Oh. So I go and I'm talking to my friend and... Jerry Windsor walks in, and my friend says, that's Jerry Windsor. So I walk up to Jerry Windsor, and I say, Jerry, my name's Ed Marinero, and my, uh, my agent wanted me to come by. And she says, Ed, listen, um, I have to do these auditions now, so I, I'd love to meet with you, but we're going to have to reschedule it. If you can you know, get your agent to call me and move on. And I went, no, you're okay, no, no problem. So she goes off, and I go to my buddy, and I say, well, you know, good luck on this. And, and he says to me, he goes, Jerry, I think she's calling you. And I turn around, Jerry Windsor goes, come here. So I go over and she goes, would you, uh, would you audition for this role we have coming up? It's, it's, um, it's four episodes. It's the last four episodes of our season. And, you know, would you audition for it? I go, yeah. She goes, well, well, here, here's this the, the scene that I want you to do. Go work on it. I'm, I got to do these auditions, and when we're done, you know. So I go out. I'm sitting on the steps outside. I'm <laughs> looking through the script, and finally, I, you know, maybe 45 minutes goes by, and, and they call me in, and I go in there, and there's like eight people in the room. You know, there's the director, there's the producers, there's you know, and so you know the character I read for was like. Uh, Joe Coffee. So we do this audition, 
and you know they were they I could see they were surprised that I would you know they talked to me a little bit about football when I got in there you know the the, the guys you know so I did the audition and and they said hey that, that was that was really good you know and they said hey we do it again this way so I did it again I go okay thanks guys and I left and I remember driving home I remember I had a, a cell phone in my car with a big cord on it and I, I called my agent and I said I said John I got this part. And sure enough, an hour later, they call, and they I got the part. Now, I was supposed to, originally, I die in the last episode. So, you know, I do these episodes, and, and you know, I'm, I'm getting along great with everybody. I mean, it's really exciting. It was a fun show to do. Big cast, great people. You know, it was just great material. And um, so the last day when I get killed, I'm supposed to get killed. I get a, there's a new script in my dressing room when I go to work. And they change the ending where they, it's uncertain whether I died or not. <laughs> in the first script, it was, I was dead. In the second script, they go, he's at the hospital. We don't know yet. And, and I remember Stephen Bochco came to me on the set when we're shooting the scene. And he said, uh, right now, the life of Joe, Joe Coffey is in the hands of your agent because <laughs> they were negotiating with, and they actually shot two endings of the scene. One where I get shot like right in the chest. They had a stunt double, you know, one I move like this, I get shot under the arm. So obviously we made a deal and I did, you know, six years of that show and what is it like when you're on a set like that? Because you said Bochco, and I, I know people who've worked with Bochco before, and they said, you know, he was just, he knew, remembers everybody's name. He had that big house, I said, like a block along. What What is it like when you're going to work and you know the product is going to be great? You know you're with fellow actors. Now you've, you're with a crew who, like, after the third year, they've been working, you know, like, you know the camera, you know everything. What is, is it just a relief because you walk, because sometimes you walk into a set and people are jerks. This though, you know everyone, you're going in. I mean, it must be a great feeling as an actor because it's probably like a, a second home to you. Well, you know, I was so new. And the little that I, I had done, I mean, I did a comedy, you know, Laverne and Shirley. And there was a lot of crap being produced and stuff you know, back then. And I didn't realize how good the show was written until I, you know, during the, after we'd done shooting every year, you know, I would always do a movie, a TV movie or whatever, you know, these women in peril movies. And it was just horrible writing, you know. I mean, it was, it was like, you know, I would, I would laugh. I'd be, I have to say lines that would make me laugh. I go, really? <laughs> you know, it was really funny. And it showed the contrast between how good Hill Street Blues was compared to what television was. I mean, remember, we, with all due respect, we came on when Chips was popular, when Charlie's Angels was popular, you know, all these flashy, beautiful people. And I remember one review of our show, they said we were the most unattractive cast in television, you know, which I, at the time, was offensive. But, you know, I guess that was a compliment, you know, at the end of the day. So, um, 
Yeah, I mean, and again, you don't you don't really appreciate it when you're doing it when it's happening. You know, just like in life. You know, I look back at my football career, my college career. You know, and I can reflect and see it in a lot different light now. And the same thing when. You know, I was doing Hill Street Blues. I didn't know how lucky I was. And I think, it, you know, working with those people, I just became a better actor. Um, you know, and, and the, when you do great writing, you know, there's, it's so almost like actor-proof. It's hard to screw up the writing because it was just so good. And, you know, the first four years were really good. And like anything else, when you have success, it changes. And the last three years, I think everybody was kind of ready for it to be over, even though they didn't want it to be over. You know, playing the same role for seven years as an actor, I mean, certainly it's, you know, profitable. You're, you're making money every year. But it's, you know, you lose a little bit of your, your edge. And, you know, I don't think actors are meant to play the same role <laughs> for seven years, you know. And the writers changed. You know, they, you know, when you're on a successful show, everybody hires you away. They take all the top writers and they want you to do your own show. And so after the first three or four years, that's what happened. You know, we had great writing staff. We, we, you know, we always had good writers. But bringing in new new writers, you know, they, they just tried to look at the other shows and tried to figure out how to, you know, kind of do their own stuff yet, you know. When, when that show, they saw in these other stuff. When that show ended, did you have offers coming in, or did you have to get back and audition again? Because I would think you're on a hit show, you would get the offers, and it's a critically acclaimed show. What was it like after that show ended? Well, you know, I left the show a year early. I uh, I asked to be written out. I knew we were only going to do one more year. I did six. We did seven. So that last year. You know, I was in a good place, and uh, I wanted to be more than just one of fourteen people. You know, and I, you know, I had a lot going on, young, good-looking guy and stuff. And um, you know, I ended up doing. I did a pilot for a TV series, and did a couple of TV movies the year that after I left, you know, I made more money the year I left than I did doing Hill Street Blues for the year, for year, my best year. And, um, you know, it was just, uh, the business started to change, you know, uh, there was a stigma attached to being a TV actor as opposed to a movie actor. Okay. And, you know, when you, we were very popular on TV, but we never really got a, any opportunities, none of us, to do movies, okay? There was a stigma attached. They, they, their thinking was, why would somebody pay to see an actor they could see for free on television, okay? That was, that was the, you know, the general feeling. And... It changed with, it started to change when guys like Bruce Willis, you know, who was really popular on, you know, Moonlighting, I think it was. Yeah. And then I remember George Clooney, 
I work with George on a show called Sisters. Right, right. Yeah, and, you know, he was on ER, and the show was really popular. And people started saying, hey, they, they like a guy on television, they'll come and see him in a movie. And, and that was, the, he was the first guy that I remember with, with, along with, um, you know, obviously if you go back to Steve McQueen, Clint Eastwood and those people, that was in the 50s and 60s. And TV wasn't as big as, as it was, you know, in the 70s and 80s. Uh, they certainly had movie careers. But, you know, the, the exposure that you got doing movies, it sort of hurt you as far as being any box office possibilities. So, you know, we got we got pigeonholed and stereotyped, you know, in that period of time until, you know, things changed. And you know, look, I I've done you know, I've done I've guest starred and stuff. I've done a bunch of stuff. My you know, I, I have a I had a series on a few years ago uh, called Blue Mountain State that was, you know, a big cult hit for uh, you know, these twenty something year olds, which and- was and you also played Joey Buttafuoco. What was what was that like? I jo- played Joey Buttafuoco. Did that you was, meet him? That was crazy. That was, uh, you know, when you think about it, that was how tame our society was when they felt they needed to make three movies about Joey Buttafuoco having an affair. <laughs> I mean, compared to this, what's going on today in the world, that was like that was like a fairy tale. But. Um, yeah, that was fun. You know, I, I got to do some fun. You know, I got to do Falcons, Falcon Crest. I got to do, uh, I don't think I did Dallas. What was the other? What was Dynasty? Show? Dynasty. Uh, what Dynasty. I got to do Dynasty. I got to work with, I had a stage kiss with Joan Collins. That was, uh, she was a hottie. Um, <laughs> That, that had a really talented cast. I mean, you the the Act Seal Awards, Swoozie Kurtz, Springsteen's wife, uh, Julian Philip Nichols or Phillips, whatever. Yeah. What was what was that show like? Was that was that an offer? Did they say, "Listen, Ed's established. We're going to get this role." <clears throat> yeah, that was um, you know that was a chick show. You know, I mean, it appealed to it was a woman's show, and I was. Uh, you know, I was one of the, I was the guys, one of the guys, you know, and, and uh, you know, there was no toxic masculinity coming from me uh, in that show, you know, it was, uh, it was just this really nice, easygoing, loving, understanding guy, you know, um, but I had four years on it, it was, uh, it was good, I mean, I think it showed a different side of me, you know, for you know, for my career, um, yeah, it was uh, it was good. The girls were great. You know, they uh, very very talented group. Writing was was interesting, but you know, it had a, definitely had a target audience they were going after. Now, what are you doing now? Do you still? I mean, you know, you've you've had a, a very successful life. I mean, you think about it, Sports Illustrated. Super Bowl, you know, I had your football card. My mom thinks you're handsome. Um, you had uh, the TV shows. What is it? Uh, what do you do? I mean, do you still do you still have the drive to act because you've accomplished so much? I think. Do you act now just when something comes up, or do you still are you still pursuing it? 
Well, you know, I uh, I think the concept of work is a lot more appealing than actually doing it. Um, you know, I, I, I know I can still do it. And, you know, I... I you know, I, I, you hear people say this all the time, but I'm a better actor today than I was, you know, 20 years ago. But, you know, when you get to be my age, you get to say, you know, there aren't as many roles for older guys, like good roles that you'd want to do. Um, you know, I have to keep my ego, you know, kind of, I can't play stuff that, you know, I don't have to. First of all, you know, I've, I've been really lucky. I, you know, my life is fine. I don't need to work, which is a great luxury to have. I don't need to. I, I've done well. And, um, you know, but I, I, I still, because I know I can do it. And I have agents. I have an agent in New York, L.A. I have an agent in Atlanta. You know, when I, you know, I get stuff sent to me, you know, to audition. Or the good thing now is, you know, I moved from L.A., years ago. I live in Charleston, South Carolina right now. And if it wasn't for technology, I'd be out of the business. But now when I have auditions, I just do them on my phone, send them to my agent, and then my agent sends them to whoever wants to see it. So I can still be in the business, you know. Um, you know, I mean, I would like to. I would like to work more. You know, I I, I did I did a movie that just came out. I did it a little over a year ago. It was just out on Hulu. It's like a holiday movie. Um, yeah, I mean, I, but I'm not. You know, I don't. I probably don't do enough to. You know, promote myself, if you will. You know, I, I'm pretty low key. I don't want to get involved in you know, social media crap, and, uh, you know, I try to keep my integrity, you know, I'm very protective of my legacy, and I, you know, I'm not going to do anything, anything just to sort of get myself out there, I mean, I won't, I won't do that, I just, uh, too much pride in, in myself, and I, you know, I see what, you know, I see what goes on, you know, I mean, yeah, it's, uh, you know, I, I, I don't want to try to be relevant when I'm not relevant anymore. You know, in, in a, a desperate, you know, attempt to be relevant, you'll do and say anything. And I don't care. I'm relevant in my own brain. I'm relevant to my son and my wife and all my good friends. And, uh, you know, I'm just not going to compromise my integrity. And I think that's what you have to do in today's world when you're in a, when you're a public figure. You know, you have to... Make sure everybody knows who you are, where you are, and what you think. And, you know, I just, I don't want people to know what I think. <laughs> right. I have, I have one final question. It's a two-parter. Um, growing up, what football team, I know you're from North Jersey. What? I'm an Eagles fan. I grew up near Philadelphia. What football team were you a fan of? Well, I was a New York Giant fan growing up. They were, that was before the Jets. Um Ironically, the first game I ever, pro game I ever saw was I was 10 years old. And it was the first year of the New York Titans. And they played the Houston Oilers in the Polo Grounds. And Don Maynard, 
was playing for the New York Titans. And Billy Cannon, I don't know if you remember that name, Billy Cannon won the Heisman Trophy, played at LSU. He was a running back for the Houston Oilers and the quarterback for the Houston Oilers. Can you guess who that was? For the Oilers? Well, it's, it's before... 1960. Oh, man. Um, I don't know. I, Y.A. Tittle? George, no, he... George Blanda. Oh, wow. <laughs> and he played like he was 50. Yeah, he played a long time. He, yeah, almost 50. Um, yeah, so I grew up like a giant fan during the Y.A. Tittle, Del Schockner, Rosie Greer, Rosie Brown, Andy Robustelli, Sam Huff. You know, those guys are, you know, guys I, you know, follow. Then the Jets came along. You know, when I was growing up, you were a Yankee or a Giant fan. And then a generation after that, you became a Jets or Mets fan. So, you know, I've always been a, a, a Giant Yankee fan. Big are, Yankee fan. Are you still, are you still a Giants fan or did you have, do you have allegiance to the Vikings? Because they're playing this weekend. So, I just yeah, wonder. That's right, that's right. Um, you know what, I, I, you know, I root, um, you know, I don't have a lot of ties anymore to the Viking, except, you know, that I played for them. You know, I'm so, the, I'm so removed from, uh, you know, that team. You know, there's, hell, they, this is, I'm two stadiums removed from the, the Vikings. I mean, I played in the old Met Stadium, then they had the, the Metrodome, they tore that down and they have this new stadium. So that makes you feel old. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, I follow them. I follow, you know, the bikes. But, I, you know, I'm not a, you know, I watch football. But this is the time of year when I really watch football. Because the first half of the season means nothing. You know, I mean, you could, as proven this year, I mean, you can, I mean, don't, aren't the... Uh, the Bucks, they won their division with a losing record yeah. or something. Yeah, I mean, so you know, it, 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 it's interesting to see. I like to I like to look at the teams that are, um, you know, who have scrap and fight to, to get into the playoffs. They're the dangerous teams, you know. The teams that have, you know, a lot have locked up the uh, when you start to to like rest players. You know, I always worry those teams that rest players, when they have to get back into it again, are they going to be ready? Right. So, so this is, this is an interesting time. I mean, and who, who's playing? The Vikes are playing, are they playing in the wild card game? The Vikings, Vikings won their division. They're playing yeah. the Giants. They're playing the Giants on Sunday because the, I'm an Eagles fan. They Eagles have a bye, but the Vikings play the Giants. So, didn't the Vikings win their division? Yeah, but there's, only one team gets a bye, the team with the best record, oh, okay, so then okay. things. So, yeah, it's crazy. See, that shows you how much, how much yeah. I follow. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I predicted the Giants to beat the Vikings, so that's a good thing. But uh, I want to thank you for taking the time today. It was good to talk to you. As I said, a fan of your work. And I had that football card when I was a kid. Do you have a website or anything? You're not into social media. You, do you tweet at all? I know you're on Twitter do you, because that's where I found you. Do you tweet at all? Yeah, I, 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 you know, I tweet now and again. I just sort of innocuous stuff. I, I, again, I don't try not to cause any controversy. <laughs> so, 
So people go look up Ed Marinaro on Twitter. Uh, if you can find Hill Street Blues, watch it. It's uh, it's groundbreaking. It's one of those iconic shows. Uh, you can go to my website, coopertalk.net. I have over 940 episodes. You can email me, cooper at coopertalk.net. Twitter, at coopertalk. Instagram, at coopertalk1. Remember, I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guest. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you guys next time.